Would you take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20? Our sermon text starts in verse 15. It's only verse 15. And so if you need to pause and grab your Bible, this would be a great time to pause and find your Bible and open up there. So let's give ourselves to God's good word. Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, the eighth commandment. The Lord says to his people, you shall not steal. Well, let's go to the Lord together and pray to him. Oh, Father, it is our delight to come to you and pray, especially in light of the eighth commandment. We are reminded of how good and generous you are. Your word says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The Lord Jesus reminds us of your goodness. He says he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the, and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And the psalmist celebrates your goodness. He says the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. And so you are good. You give us sunshine. You give us snow. You give us grass and trees. You give us all these wonders of nature. You sustain our lives with food and clothing. You are good. But as we think of your goodness and as we consider the eighth commandment, we are reminded that we have need to confess. You are generous in all that you do, but we often are so greedy controlled and possessed by our possessions. We have our hearts set on, on more. And so we take and we steal and we defraud our neighbors. And so, Father, we come to you afresh and ask for your forgiveness. Forgive us for having greedy hearts. Would you teach us, we pray, as we study the Eighth Commandment, would you teach us to have generous hearts? Would we learn how to imitate you in giving good gifts to those who are around us? Would you teach us how to use our possessions for your glory and your kingdom? Would you teach us how to seek first your kingdom? And Father, we need great help in this for our hearts cling to stuff. And so would you change our hearts even as we listen to your word? We need great help. Father, we're so thankful for your word this morning. We pray that you would encourage us and change our minds. We pray that you would lead us in paths of righteousness. And we pray this in Jesus' good and precious name. Amen. So if you're a parent with young children, or if you are a parent and you can look back to your parenting years, you, you can recognize this this phrase, that's mine. So you're at home and you hear the cry from the living room or, or from downstairs, that's mine. And so you, you come into that room and you find what? You find your two children or, or more fighting, brawling over a toy. And so as parents, at least for me, when I come on that situation, I, I'm tempted out of my own irritation to begin the scolding. I say, be nice. Didn't anyone teach you how to share? Maybe you should just be quiet. I don't want to hear that. But if you take a step back from the situation, from that parenting situation, and consider it in the abstract, you realize that there's something profound going on in these little ones. 
The truth is that even at a young age, these little children have an idea of ownership. The child reasons away in his mind, that toy belongs to me, and because it belongs to me, no one can take it away from me. And if someone takes it away from me, I'm going to let everyone know. I'm going to cry out for justice until my voice is heard and somebody acts on my behalf. And what we find here in the midst of of the tears and the toys is the truth of Romans chapter 2, verse 15. We find that the eighth commandment has been written upon the hearts of even the littlest among us, little toddlers who will cry out for justice. And due to God's common grace, we have this sense of right and wrong inscribed upon our hearts. That child knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that when his sibling comes and rips that toy out of his hands, that he has been wronged. He doesn't need to go and and be trained in property rights. He doesn't need to to read the law codes. He doesn't need to get a lawyer and ask a lawyer's advice on the situation. That little child knows that he's been wronged. And so while we all have this intuition of sorts into right and wrong, we still need to have our, our definition of theft sharpened and clarified by the Scriptures. And so in our sinful state, it's easy for us to be like a little toddler, only caring about the law of God, only caring about the eighth commandment when it will bring some kind of benefit to us. And so we're guilty of using the law as a a partial judge. And so in... During this week, as I was prepping for this sermon, I was hunting around for a sharp and clear definition of the Eighth Commandment to help us on our way. And I came to the larger Westminster Catechism, and I found some help. And so when you hear the word catechism, it's essentially a a fancy word to mean an instruction manual. And so we think of the larger Westminster Catechism, it's it's an instruction manual for the church. And so in this catechism, the writers of it list off all sorts of sins and grievances that fall underneath the, the canopy of the Eighth Commandment, what not to do. And at the end of this long list of things not to do, the writers write this, and all other unjust or sinful ways of taking or withholding from our neighbor what belongs to him. So the catechism helps us out, gives us a nice sharp definition. We sin whenever we take or whenever we withhold what rightfully belongs to our neighbor. And this definition is helpful because it makes makes the, the, the Eighth Commandment have a broad vision. It pushes on us. It won't let us just point our fingers at the Bernie Madoffs of the world. The Eighth Commandment does not just protest against the Pink Panther or or Danny Ocean. Rather, the the definition pushes the commandment into us and makes us deal with the commandment on a personal level. We, we, We break this commandment every time we take or withhold what belongs rightfully to our neighbor. And so just like all the rest of the commandments that we have been studying, we have some soul searching to do when we deal with the Eighth Commandment. And it's for this reason that when you study the scriptures, whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, we find the the Eighth Commandment applying to all sorts of different circumstances and settings. And so I just want to walk through a few applications to to show you, to demonstrate how broad the Eighth Commandment is. And so as we think about it, as we study the scriptures, we find that the commandment applies to the marketplace. So if you want to obey the Eighth Commandment, you have to think about the marketplace, what you do there. So it applies to those who sell goods in the marketplace. Those who sell must deal fairly and squarely with those who are buying from them. We learn about this in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 13 through 15. 
Moses writes, You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Fair weights, just measures. That's what the Lord calls for. But the commandment does not only apply to the, to the seller, it also applies to the, to the buyer, the one who is receiving or purchasing goods. We, we get a hint of this in James chapter 5, verse 4, where James writes, Behold, the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. So here's this man who hired laborers to go out in the field and work. But now he refuses to, to pay back these laborers for what they have done. The commandment calls us to keep our, our word. When we say we're going to buy something, we're going to actually buy it. And it also changes the way we engage our attitude in the marketplace. Our words, our advertisements, our negotiations must have an even-handedness about them. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 14 says this, Bad, bad, says the buyer, but when he goes away, then he boasts. So we see the Eighth Commandment applies to the marketplace. But it also applies in some other interesting areas. The commandment applies to how we take care of, how we think about the poor. And this is important in the Old Testament. So the Eighth Commandment is broken whenever we profit from those who have fallen upon hard times. The rich are never to profit from the poor. Exodus chapter 22, verse 25, we hear this. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. Even more, the Eighth Commandment is, is broken when we fail to make provision for the poor. And so we can't defraud the poor, take advantage of the poor, but, but we're also to, to make provision for the poor. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, we see how practical this was for Israel. The Lord says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. And so we think about the Eighth Commandment. It applies to the marketplace. It applies to the poor. But it also applies directly how, do we, how we relate to our, our neighbors. Certainly the commandment prohibits us from ripping off our neighbors. We can't conveniently change the lot line so that we might have a, a bigger backyard or we can add on a, a garage into the back lot. Nor can we, when we're hungry, see our neighbor's cow and take it for our own use. That's, uh, that's unlawful. And that's plain. That's pretty simple to understand. But the, the commandment also goes further in neighborly, neighborly relations. It condemns the man. It condemns the woman who is inattentive, who is careless about his neighbor's property. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 1 through 3. This is really interesting. Moses writes, You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house. And it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. And you shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's which he loses and you find you may not ignore it. 
And last of all, as we're searching out the Old New Testaments, we find that the commandment applies to how we relate to God. And perhaps you've never thought about this before, but it's possible to rob, it's possible to steal from God. In fact, this is what the prophet Malachi accuses the people of Israel. Israel, instead of offering up the the best of what they had in sacrifice to the Lord, routinely offered up their worst. They gave to the Lord animals that no one would have wanted, animals blind and lame and sickly. And Israel wouldn't bring the first fruits of their harvest to the Lord. They rather brought what was left over, what was old or lying around. Israel made sure that their bank accounts, that their stomachs were full, that they were well taken care of before they turned their attention to the Lord and thanksgiving and worship. And so we find this word in Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, and it's a harsh word. The prophet says, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. So the reality is that we could keep going on and on as we think about the Eighth Commandment. There are many more applications we can make in light of this word and the laws we find in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And this reality is actually quite sad. Because of our proclivity to sin, we could spend days and weeks applying the commandment to all sorts of of circumstances and settings, and we would never sufficiently cover every angle up. Martin Luther, in his exposition of the Ten Commandments, laments over this fact. He writes this. He says, Who can recount all the clever new tricks that increase every day in business? Everyone searches for an advantage to the disadvantage of others. They forget the law that says, whatever you wish others to do to you, do also to them. When we observe the nature of the world, to what extent greed prevails everywhere, we not only should have enough to do nourishing ourselves with God, seeking God, and seeking to live right lives, but we also should become filled with dread and fright at this perilous and miserable life that is so weighed down by and besmeared with and held captive to anxiety and dishonest searching after daily sustenance. So instead of trying to cover and lay out a comprehensive law code covering every possible application of the Eighth Commandment for our present day, I want to turn our attention elsewhere. I want to ask a a question that helps us dig down into the Eighth Commandment. We can ask questions like these. Why is it that we live in a world gone wrong like this? A world where clever new tricks are the norm and not the outlier. A world made, a world made miserable by dishonesty. And we can personalize the matter for ourselves as well because the problem is not just out there in society with those crooks and thieves, but it also has something to do with us and we all deal with the Eighth Commandment at different levels. As so we can ask ourselves, well, why do I find it ever so easy, ever so natural to argue and sweat and labor for the best possible deal for myself while never giving any thought or attention to what my neighbor might need or his or her circumstances? Why is it so easy to fudge the numbers in, in my, to my advantage while neglecting everyone else? Why is it so easy for, for me to turn my head aside from the poor in the street and walk the other way? Why is it so difficult to give away my hard-earned money to others or to the church? 
And so the Sunday school answer to all these questions is sin. We're all children of Adam and Eve, born in sin, operating in the flesh. Therefore, we have great trouble to, in obeying the law of God. And while the Sunday school answer is certainly right, it's certainly not all that helpful. It's like going to the doctor, and the doctor says, yeah, I see, you're, you're sick, really sick. You'd be no way satisfied with that doctor if that's all that he said to you is, yeah, you're, you're sick. You want to know a specific diagnosis, what you're actually sick with. So the question is, well, why is it so hard for us to obey the Eighth Commandment from a, a pure heart? We find some help by going to another catechism of the church, this time the Heidelberg Catechism. And so the catechism asks this question, it asks, what does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? And it goes on to answer uh, by listing off much of what we've already covered so far. Robbery, swindling, dishonest weights, excessive interest, other things like that. But then the catechism goes on to say and caps it all off with this phrase. In addition, God forbids all greed and pointless squandering of his gifts. That's really helpful. Why do we have such a hard time with the Eighth Commandment? Well, the, the Heidelberg Catechism says God forbids all greed. We find the answer there. We have a, a problem with greed. So what is greed? Well, we can offer up different definitions for greed from different angles. Greed can be defined in, in terms of, of the heart. When we're greedy, our hearts are excessively attached to money or things or stuff. We can define greed in terms of control. We are greedy when we are possessed, when we are owned by our stuff. We can think of greed in terms of, of worship or idolatry. We are greedy when we worship at the altar of money, sacrificing everything else so that we might get some more of it for ourselves. And all those definitions, I think, are true and have some use, but I want to try to add some color, add some depth by pursuing greed from one specific angle. And so let's define greed in the terms of vision, or more specifically, tunnel vision. Greed as tunnel vision. So before my grandma stopped driving, she suffered from some terrible tunnel vision. We would often see her driving around our, our small little town of 600 people. She drove a, a gray Ford Taurus, the quintessential grandma car. And so we'd see her coming down the road and say, hey, there's grandma. If we were in the other lane, we would wave at Grandma, but she wouldn't see us. Or you might be walking on the side of the road, and Grandma would be driving by, and you might wave at the corner at Grandma, but she wouldn't see you. We could see Grandma, but she couldn't see us. And the reality is, as long as she had her eyes directly on the road, she couldn't see anything around her. Now, the tricky thing about tunnel vision is that my Grandma didn't even really realize that she had tunnel vision. Because slowly but surely, her, her vision was closing in, and it was closing in slowly. So finally, at one point, her vision was straight ahead, and she couldn't see anything else. And tunnel vision is dangerous. Dangerous for grandma driving on the road, and dangerous for everybody else who's near her, because she can't see anything else going on around her. I think this is helpful for greed because this is what greed is like in our lives. Our eyes become focused on one singular object, whether that be a number in our bank account or a certain vehicle or home or some other thing in our life. And all of a sudden, we can't see anything else. We lose sight of the periphery. We have vision for one thing and one thing only. 
What about our neighbors? Well, I can't see them anymore. What about our our God? Well, I can't see him anymore. All that captures our vision is that object and everything else fades into the midst. As we find this illustrated for us in the Gospels, what does this actually look like on the ground? Luke chapter 12 records a story on the subject of greed. So in Luke chapter 12, a man makes his way to the Lord Jesus. Jesus is teaching and ministering, and this man brings an urgent need before Christ. And we know Jesus' ministry, this wasn't uncommon for him. Jesus was often interrupted in the midst of his teaching and preaching and travels to help those in need. But this case was different. This man didn't come to Jesus because he needed to be healed himself or seeking the healing of a friend or loved one. He didn't come to Jesus because he wanted forgiveness. Rather, he came to Jesus with this appeal. He said, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, Jesus listens to this man. And as we continue to read on in Luke chapter 12, we find that Jesus was not pleased with what this man said to him. Jesus gave this man a sharp rebuke. He said, man, who made me a judge and arbitrator over you? So we have to take a step back and ask, well, why was Jesus so sharp with this man? Was Jesus too busy for this request? Well, I don't think so. Did Jesus think this work was beneath him? Well, I don't think so either. No, Jesus refused to enter into this discussion, this dispute, because he saw this man for who he actually was. Jesus understood what was operating in his heart. He saw that this man had, had tunnel vision. And what does this man say in the presence of Jesus? Well, he doesn't fall down and worship Jesus. He doesn't cry out for the forgiveness of sins. He doesn't inquire about entry into the kingdom of God. Jesus, what is faith? What is repentance? Rather, he says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Or in other words, this man with tunnel vision says, Jesus, I want my stuff that belongs to me. 
Just as tunnel vision is dangerous on the road, it's even more dangerous when it's operating in our hearts through greed. With our hearts and our minds and our eyes set upon gaining possessions for ourselves, we are a danger to ourselves and to our neighbors. When our hearts are set upon possessions, looking only at them, we easily wrong and manipulate and defraud our neighbors. And even worse, we defraud ourselves because when we're seeking possessions exclusively, we lose out on the goodness and graciousness of God. So in light of all that we have said this morning, defining the commandment, applying the commandment, trying to get underneath the commandments, we can say this, the eighth commandment really matters. The stakes are high. If we get this word wrong, we're going to hurt, we're going distra- to disgrace our neighbors. Even more, we're going to rob ourselves of the goodness of God. We're going to shortchange ourselves. And so the urgent question for us is this, well, how can we grow in obedience to this commandment? How can we work away at killing greed in our hearts? How can we work away at widening out our, our vision? How are we to grow in generosity and love for our neighbors? Well, as I was studying this week, I was pulled back to a very old um, book. And I found some help here. I want to bring the help I found from this old book to you. So the, the, the help I found was from St. Basil the Great. And so St. Basil the Great lived in the fourth Century, and you probably haven't heard of St. Basil the Great, but he was a noted theologian. He made war against the Arians. He was a, a pastor, and he was most importantly for our, our sermon right now. He was a man who had to deal with the issue of greed and the Eighth Commandment. So Basil was not an outsider when it came to the matter of greed. He had to struggle with greed all of his life. Basil was born into an aristocratic and landed family, so that made him exceedingly wealthy. Even his name exuded wealth. Basil can be translated as ruler. Imagine having your name ruler, king. As a boy, he was provided the best education in the world. He even studied at Athens for a time. And so it gets interesting here. When, when Basil was 14, his father died and Basil received the, the great inheritance, the estates, the riches, the lands of his father. And so what would Basil do with all of these possessions? Would he have his vision constrained by them? Well, what you find in Basil's life is that he waged war throughout his entire life on this matter of greed. And Basil sets us an example. By the time of his death, Basil had leveraged nearly all of his wealth for the good of others. And so Basil, from his own experiences and from the, his study of the Scriptures, preached a series of sermons on wealth, on greed, on generosity. And from these sermons, I want to set before you a few applications, a few warnings, a few encouragements. And so the first thing we need to learn from Basil is this. He, he teaches us that we must be aware of how attached we are to our stuff. And so Basil writes here from firsthand experience. You can tell that he was a man who who struggled with possessions. Listen to what he says here. If you had truly loved your neighbor, it would have occurred to you long ago to divest your wealth. But now your possessions are more a part of you than the members of your own body, and separation from them is painful as the amputation of one of your limbs. Had you determined long ago to give to those in need, how would it 
how would it be unbearable now to distribute whatever was left? So Basil's dead honest with us here. If you're really going to make war against this matter of greed, if you really want to grow in obedience with the Eighth Commandment, you have to understand what you're in for. The fight here is not a matter of making a few New Year's resolutions. I'm going to do this or that. Rather, it's going to be a knockdown, drag-out fight. Did you catch what Basil was arguing, his argument here? His argument is sobering. When you live a life for possessions, your possessions will become your life. And therefore, to cultivate a detachment from your possessions will feel like cutting off your own arm or your own leg or taking your own life. Everything within you will fight to maintain the status quo. Every argument your flesh can make against you will be used against you ruthlessly. So Basil wants us to know, you need to know what kind of fight you're in for. But now your possessions are more a part of you than the members of your own body. And separation from them is painful as the amputation of one of your limbs. So we need to be sobered up. If we're going to do battle, we have to count the cost at the beginning and, and put on the right mindset of what we're dealing with. So that's the first thing Basil says to us. He says the second thing. He says, you must seriously reckon with the fate of the greedy. I love Basil. He was no limp-wristed preacher. He had fire in his bones, and he preached. Listen to what he says here. He says, You rich, behold the final end of greed and break your passionate attachment to possessions. And Basil goes on. He, he pours it on. And here's a sampling of his preaching as he preaches to his church. He says, But what comes after this? Is not all that awaits you a six-foot plot of earth? Does not a small quantity of rocks and soil su suffice to cover his mortal flesh? Why then do you toil? Why do you transgress? Why do you gather a fruitless harvest with your own hands? Will you never rouse yourself from this stupor? Will you never regain consciousness? Will you never come to your senses? Will you not bring before your eyes the judgment seat of Christ? What will you say in your own defense when all around you stand those whom you have treated unjustly? denouncing you before the righteous judge. What then will you do? What advocates will you retain? What lawyers will you get for yourself? What witnesses will you present? How will you sway the judge who cannot be deceived? And so Basil sets before us the judgment seat of Christ, and he says, you need to examine your life now in light of that day. Break your passionate, break your passionate attachment to possessions. That's what Basil calls for. And so he sobers us up. He, he warns us about judgment. And then he encourages us. And we need encouragement. He encourages us by saying we must leverage everything so that we might obtain true and real treasure for ourselves. So Basil was no simple ascetic. He was far too saturated in the scriptures for that. And so for Basil, the problem was not a desire in wealth, Rather, the problem is that, that humans in sin are desi desiring and pursuing the wrong kind of wealth. We're shortchanging ourselves by pursuing earthly possessions exclusively. And so Basil, in his sermons, encourages his people to pursue lasting wealth. He says this, The more wealth-loving you are, the more you will take care that none of your goods is lost. Transfer everything to the eternal realm. Leave none of your wealth behind for strangers. So what is Basil saying? He's saying be greedy for something that you'll actually get to keep, something lasting, something of value, something glorious. 
But here's the question, well, how do we, how do we make this transfer of wealth from this temporal age to the eternal age, from earthly treasures to heavenly treasures? Well, he tells us we pursue eternal wealth by spending, by leveraging, by giving and using our earthly resources for the good of our neighbors and for the growth of God's kingdom. We kill greed by practicing generosity. And we gain heavenly treasure by using what God gives us generously now for the good of his kingdom, for the good of others. And so Basil is quick to encourage us, and I think these are fitting words to end our study on the Eighth Commandment. Listen to how he ties his call to to piety, to good works, to the gospel of Jesus. Basil writes, Prepare yourself... Prepare yourself for your own burial. Works of piety, so think here, leveraging your wealth for the good of others and for the good of God's kingdom. Works of piety are an excellent burial garment. Make your departure in the full regalia of your good deeds. Convert your wealth into a truly inseparable adornment. Keep everything with you when you go. Be persuaded to this by Christ, the good counselor who loves us. He became poor for us so that he might make us rich through his poverty and gave himself as a ransom for all. Let us either be persuaded by him because he is wise and knows all things, or let us wait patiently for him because he loves us, or let us give to him in return because he is our great benefactor. In any case, let us do what we have been commanded that we may become heirs of eternal life in Christ himself, to whom, is, to whom is due glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And that's a fitting word. Let's pray towards that end. Well, Father, we thank you for the Eighth Commandment. And Father, we want to put it to use. And so we ask for your help. Well, Father, would you teach us, would you reveal to us how, just it, how much we are attached to our stuff. And Father, would you remind us of the fate of the greedy? Would you put those warning signs in front of us again and again and again? Because we need it. We forget. We live in this materialistic age where we long for more and more. So remind us of the judgment seat of Christ. Even more, we we pray that you would give us a spirit of generosity that we would be true treasure hunters seeking heavenly treasure and using everything that we have right now, everything that you've given us to lay hold of that which will last and that which is good and that which will satisfy our souls. Would you give us the grace of Jesus and would you grant us grace to walk in his footsteps as servants of others? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.